0: Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Today we're opening up our mailbag and answering some questions from our listeners. And to help me do that, I'm joined today as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today?
1: I'm really happy, partly because this is our first podcast together in almost a month. Because I was traveling.
0: Yeah, it's been a while since we've recorded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and
1: I had to reacquaint myself with the buttons to push on the camera and the <laughs> cables to connect. And while you were laughing at me off in the sidelines there, but that's
0: okay. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm really glad we're going to do this together again.
1: That's how I feel. Yeah.
0: Oh, totally. Same. It's been a little while, and for the record, you you acquitted yourself really wonderfully, Dad. particularly for somebody with some mild Luddite tendencies. You know, I think that you really, we had you adjusting ISOs, and they, I mean, it just really got crazy in there with the camera settings for a second. So... Like you said, also looking forward to answering some questions from our (laughs) listeners. We get phenomenal questions, which is one of the reasons that we could do episodes like this so regularly. And if you'd like to get your question answered on a future edition of the podcast, the best way to do that is to sign up for our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. But you can also reach us just through email at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. So our first question that we're going to do today I thought was really interesting, and it's about essentially balancing discernment in the commentary of other people with acceptance and not being too defended around it. So here it is. Lately, I've had both a close friend and my partner tell me that I'm sometimes too self-critical. I don't really think that I am, but I'm also not taking their opinions lightly because they know me very well. And as you know, it's sometimes easier to see other people's patterns than it is to see our own. And this got me thinking more generally. How do you go about processing observations like these from other people? A situation where somebody else makes a statement about you that's well-meaning and could be helpful, but doesn't line up with your current image of yourself or your current level of self-awareness. In other words, what helps us be both accepting, i.e. not defensive, and discerning at the same time. So, Dad, what do you think?
1: Well, immediately I'm having flashbacks of multiple episodes of that with other people <laughs> in my history. Yeah, same. same. And there's this term in cognitive psychology where we index across episodes to find what's invariant or what's common to them. It's kind of a way of thinking about it. It's like, if you see a bunch of pictures, what do they have in common? And two things really stand out for me, which is, first... What do they actually mean by the words? What do they really mean? What do they mean? And second, what's their intention? So to start with the second one first, because that's actually really foundational, because it has to do with the frame. Is their intention to take the other person down a notch? Is their intention to get the other person to change for their own convenience or because they'd like something to be different? You know, is there intention to position themselves as the one-up dominant knower in the situation, the one who can yeah. handle the case of others because they've had one more mindfulness workshop than the other person yeah. has had sure. or something like that, you know? And these are, these are real where we just kind of scan the intent, and, and it's actually worth taking it both ways and to ask ourselves, what is our intent when we give others feedback? And I think the intent of other people is often kind of, it's a mixed bag. It's mixed pickles. I Mm -hmm. lived in Germany for a year. They had an expression, mixed pickles. And there are different (laughs) things woven together, right? And amidst even good intent could be all kinds of other intents. But then can you tease those apart to find the good intent? Okay. Then what do they mean when they say self-critical?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do they mean, for example, that you, let's say, are a highly conscientious, high-achievement oriented, high-accomplishment oriented person who really pursues excellence and you like pursuing excellence, and in the process of that, you notice when you've
0: lapsed in some ways? Yeah, when your performance is an excellence, so you yeah. can aspire to that higher bar.
1: Yeah. yeah. If Steph Curry, for example, basketball player, just says, okay, I'm going to shoot Free throws until I get a hundred in a row that I make. Yeah. And is he being too self-critical or is he committed to an extremely high level of performance? Maybe also, though, they mean that they recognize in you a kind of harshness with yourself that mm-hmm. was normative in your family because that's how your parents were and that's how people were supposed to be, but is really harsh. It's hard. Yeah. Maybe that's what they mean. That's my kind of riff on this. Track the intent and then burrow into what they actually mean, sometimes going back and forth in dialogue. And then it's important to be careful, like you said at the start, about defensiveness.
0: Yeah, because there's definitely some balance here because I've, yeah. I've definitely received commentary from other people that felt like it was just commentary. And yeah. at the same time, I would say that in almost every moment of real personal growth or personal growth process I've ever gone through in my life, there was a important element of it That was somebody else bringing something to my attention that I was not seeing clearly about myself. I've talked about this on the podcast pretty regularly in the past. A lot of this for me had to do with a sort of wound tightness, an excessive fault-finding tendency both in myself and in other people, and a lot of kind of very rigid view about the way that things should be in different kinds of ways. And it was very helpful for me to get a lot of external feedback from a lot of places, including people that I really trusted, who just said kind of over and over in a bunch of different ways, hey, Forrest, I don't think that this tendency is serving you really well. So a lot of it really is about the messenger, right? And in this question, the messengers are good messengers and are thoughtful people who, at least as near as we can tell, have the person's best intention at heart. And so that's a very important thing to take a look at too. How uh, consistent is this feedback across domains? And are the people who are telling you this people that you like appreciate and want to emulate in some way or think that there's some quality in them that it would be useful to bring into yourself? Then alongside that, there's this funny thing where I think that our own aversion to something can be an indicator to its value to us and the kind Mm -hmm. of aversion that we have. There's commentary that other people have made about me that I've been hurt by. And most of that commentary I don't think has been very useful for me from like a personal growth perspective. But then there's commentary that I have been aversive to and that I've like pushed away from myself and there is you can feel that feeling of like a sudden pushing away of it without real deep consideration. And often, as I explored that commentary and time passed and I grew and changed, I eventually found that there was some merit to it. And so the nature of your own emotional response to something, I think, can be a little bit of an indicator as to how valuable that that comment is to you and whether or not there might be some kernel of truth to it. Does that make sense to you, Dad? Oh, Does it's that, great. Uh, jive in your experience?
1: Yeah. And building on what you're saying there, so let's suppose that you're kind of tracking this other person. And... Maybe they've got mixed intentions, but some of them are good. Okay, part one, part two. They're using words, and you the words don't really map to your experience well, but there's something they're getting at that's really true. Mm-hmm. And just mm-hmm. pursuing that inquiry, well, what you know, yeah. that you can relate to and harvest, really, from what they've been saying to you.
0: Yeah. How can I find the value in this is, I think, a really great question for sure to yeah. ask here. yeah. yeah. What's like yeah. the kernel that I can take? And then what's the, uh, Elizabeth, my partner, one of the things that I said to her recently is that when we go through some kind of a process around you know, dealing with an issue inside of our relationship or just like having a conversation about something, she is really, really good at finding the part of it that she can say yes to and kind of like very skillfully letting the rest of it just fall gently to the floor without really kind of taking it on herself in a, in a way that just yeah. wouldn't be useful or getting into an argument about it.
1: Yeah, that's great.
0: Good. Awesome. Okay, so I think that that's about as much uh, juice as we can wring from that one for the moment. Oh, wait, let me throw in one weird... Oh, did you? Okay,
1: yeah, go ahead. What if
0: the the other person's
1: feedback is positive? Observing interactions, people tend to be quicker to absorb negative feedback and to kind of give it credence, which is the negativity bias right there. On the other hand, if someone were to say, you know, I've just been really knocked out again and again by what a caring Kind, pro the benefit of others, sort of person you are. Mm -hmm. Long pause. (laughs) What do we do then? Can you take that in? Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's really, I mean, that's really interesting because for stuff like that, I mean, that can be deployed absolutely in like a manipulative way, sure, of course. But by and large, when people usually are coming not. to you with that kind of an authentic, yeah, yeah, usually not.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: I think that sometimes people have an aversion to that kind of stuff because they have a fear of manipulation in some way, often uh. due to residue from the family system and all of this kind of complicated stuff that we've talked about in previous episodes of the podcast. But yeah, I I think that, I mean, I definitely have an aversion to that kind of a thing a, a good chunk of the time. And it can be really hard to, to let the good stuff land. And then- a way that feels emotionally authentic. Yeah. Because often it activates some like deeper (laughs) vulnerabilities or emotions inside of ourselves. I don't know. Do you have a thought about that, Dad? Just before we move on here real quickly. I do think it makes us squirm a little and it tends to surface. makes me
1: squirm. Yeah, the other thing. In other words, the, the ways in which you don't feel that way or if they only knew, that tends to come up, right? That said, I just think one of the greatest gifts we can give to each other is to recognize the good in each other not naively, but to actually recognize the good in each other. I guess I think of it a little bit like, you know, if someone gives you a gift, it's sort of churlish to push it away. You know, it's obnoxious. Mm. It's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't want your gift. No, no, no. This is their gift. This is their truth. And even if you're painfully aware of an exception or two to the generalization they're offering you, it's their gift to you. It's sincerely Mm. offered, you know, why not receive it?
0: Yeah. And that framing where you flip it from being about congratulating yourself to being about like receiving an authentic positive offering from somebody else can be really helpful for people who are like averse to positive feedback. That just like little tone change on it. Totally. Yeah. Good point. Great. Well, let's move on to the second question then. Sound good? No. All right. So our next question is, and I, I think this is a really interesting question. I really liked this one. I come from a large family where my mother had a strong presence. After she passed away, and my father passed a year later, there was a large shift in family dynamics. I feel like we are all falling away from each other. My siblings invite me for holiday gatherings, but that's about it, and there's minimal contact outside of that. I make some efforts to connect, but I feel like I'm the only one who initiates, and this causes me to pull away more. Is there a norm for how families change? What can I do here? Well, a lot in that. First, the observation about
1: family systems. And we ought to do an episode on family systems theory. For me, the notion is like a mobile that's got different elements in it that forms a kind of equilibrium. What happens if you take out one of the major parts or another part the whole system has got to change. It's got to re-equilibrate and to form a new kind of equilibrium. And it's extremely common in my observation that when the parents die, the adult kids tend to disperse or get into conflicts with each other or both. And there are exceptions to that, but conflict and dispersal is really common. Then you get into cultural values because... Perhaps the kind of thing that would be maybe normative in a, I don't know what, American classic white certain American kind of family, yeah, sure. wasp mm-hmm. or something like that, maybe would not be normative from a different culture uh, and background. So I don't want to presume that it's like that. But there is evolution over time. And I was struck by an observation uh, in this class I took in developmental psychology uh, back in the day, in which for most people, the longest duration relationships they'll have in this life are with their siblings, right? Yeah. Because your parents will usually pass away. You'll acquire your, your own mate later on in life, but you've known mm-hmm. your, your, brothers or your brothers or sisters your whole lifetime. Those are long relationships. And, you know, in a long relationship, people, for one, as people age, they tend to get more individual. They get more different from each other. So differences tend to grow, and siblings that were very close when they were playing in the backyard when they were in Mm -hmm. elementary school together, suddenly now in their 50s have really developed differences. And then you bring in their own relationships, their own partners, and the, the effects of their own partners, and their own friendships, and geographical change, and all the rest. Yeah, there can definitely be a lot of growing apart.
0: There is some natural developmental stage stuff woven in here, I think for sure. And one of my questions to the person who's writing the question would be something along the lines of, do you think that this is just a yearning for another time in life or for another developmental stage that has now passed? Yeah. Or is this something that is very alive for you in the moment? And this took me, when I was reading this question, to a bigger consideration of like, how do we meet our needs and how do we think about interacting with the needs of other people. Huh. Because the easy answer to this question is like, well, just tell them how you feel. You know, Have a communication with them about it. Because when we're going to go through a process of going, hey, here's this thing for me, and I really want this thing. This thing is important to me. It's meaningful to me to have a relationship with my siblings. We've kind of got three options, right? We can either find a way to meet our needs ourselves. We can communicate them effectively to other people and enlist others in the meeting of our needs. Or we can accept that that need's not going to get met. And there's not really like a magical fourth option where other people just start meeting our needs for us. Like that doesn't doesn't really happen that often in normal life. Or they just like suddenly appear for us the next day. And then when we go through the communication process is where things tend to get a little thorny for people. Because the options that are presented in a lot of the like personal growth content that you bump into online are kind of these two options. The first one is just to complain about it to other people. Wow, we're not seeing each other anymore. This is a real bummer. I feel bad. I mostly blame you for not initiating the kind of connection that I want. You know, harumph. And that's obviously kind of a losing, losing bet right there. And then the second option that people are given is to really reveal their deep emotional vulnerability. To say, wow, you know, I just want to be really honest and speak my truth about this, and uh, it's my authentic experience that we've grown apart from each other, and that makes me feel really bad and really sad. And I just wish for us some other form of relationship. And that second kind of communication, the like max authenticity, max emotional vulnerability communication, is I think the one that really gets like a lot of compliments, a lot of laurels. From the sort of broader, personal growth, self-helpy community, particularly on places like social media, but there are two big problems with it. The first problem is that a lot of people just don't want to do that. They don't want to talk to others that way. It's, it's not their style, it's not their culture. It just feels a little uh, a little edgy for them. They just don't want to do it. Second problem with it is that it is such a fine line between expressing our authentic emotions and making other people responsible. For those authentic emotions and being able to fully stay in the category where i'm just communicating authentically without making other people responsible for it is such a high level such a high bar to clear i don't know if i'm capable of clearing it in my life and i think that like holding people to that standard is probably unrealistic so then the third option is just to communicate from a stance of more positive emotions, more enthusiasm about something. Wow, I used to really love it when we fill in the blank, yeah. when we saw each other here, when we did this kind of a thing. And you know what? I miss it. And I kind of like yearn for that moment in time. And I think it would just be really fun to do this thing together more often and to come more from that place of enthusiasm. So I said a lot there, and I'm wondering what you think about all of this, Dad?
1: I thought it was great and I want to really endorse your third position here. Mm, yeah. And including in ways that are just natural, you know, plain yeah, spoken.
0: simple, totally. Plain spoken,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. And then I think also there's a thing for arranging things yourself just to be practical here. And sometimes it is true that there is an asymmetry in a relationship. There's someone who wants more contact than the other person wants or someone who wants to get together more often. And maybe there's a place for just embracing that fact. Like you care more about it than they do. It doesn't mean that they don't care at all. It's just that you care about it more than they do. And that's okay. It's not a problem. You don't have to make them care more. And I think sometimes when we get caught up in trying to get other people to want things, it's problematic. You know, often they would just sort of go along with the fact that you want it and it's cool and they like you and they love you and you're a sibling and- You know, they're going to come to your memorial service, (laughs) you know, (laughs) right? There's a lifelong connection there. But, you know, they don't care that much, but it's okay. On the other hand, if you raise the stakes and start trying to persuade them to want a deep relationship that they don't actually care that much about, then people tend to balk sometimes on the other side.
0: And I think that's a great point for almost everything in a relationship, Dad. Like, that's a great Trojan horsing of just a general point about building a happy relationship is the bottom line is that if you're the person who really wants a clean and beautiful house, and I'm going to use an example from your life here, dad, if you're the person who wants like an organized space and your partner doesn't really care that much about having an organized space, the reality is that, yes, you're going to be the person who spends more effort Creating an organized space. That's the way that relationships work. And of course, we can go through like a good process on, hey, this is really important to me, honey. And if you could just help me out here in all these different ways, that would be lovely. But like, there's an acceptance part to this too, where like, I'm the person who cares more about building this meaningful relationship. And therefore, yeah, more of the work is going to fall on my shoulders.
1: Right. Which gets at a really deep topic, which has to do with that. Time in a relationship of various kinds could be at work, could be raising your kids, could be with your partner, where basically you're saying to somebody, I wish that you valued X more highly.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: I want you to want something more than you already wanted, which has to do with values and motivation. I wish you were more motivated for X. And then it's really interesting how to have a healthy conversation about that. Cause I honestly think there really is a place for that in oh. relationships. Yep. And we are more plastic. We're more flexible about what we want than we often give ourselves credit for. And so that's very interesting. How do we make skillful requests into the mind? Because it's very intimate what we want. It's more intimate than what we do, right? It's mm. very close to who we are in, their, in our inner being. And for someone to say to us, I wish that you would value something more, or that you would find your way into liking something more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then naturally wanting it, being naturally inclined more in a certain direction rather than white knuckling your way toward it. That's a really intimate conversation. And yet I think it's super important to be prepared to push past the taboo
0: and, and to ask for that. Totally, and, and I also think that that is so about what's the nature of your relationship with this person or this yeah. group of people. You can make that request in a established intimate relationship mm-hmm. in a way where you can't make that request in a distant friendship or i mean you can but like the odds of it going the way that you want it to go are way lower and so some of this is just about like sussing out what's the nature of the relationship and how much space is there for that kind of a communication i think one of the the great indicators of like healthy relationships healthy family systems good friendships is that that kind of a request can be made and people can interact with that in a productive way. I think sometimes we're looking
1: across the the table and we're seeing someone who's sad, and we realize that they're sad because they recognize accurately in us that we just don't care that much about something.
0: Mm, mm -hmm. And
1: they feel sad about that. Sometimes it's that we just don't care that much about what they want or our impact on them or their aspirations. And then I think sometimes there's a moment where empathically you recognize that sadness, that disappointment, say, in another person, and you look inside yourself and you say, you know, I'm going to mobilize caring more. I'm going to nudge myself Mm -hmm. to care more about this, and I'm going to be accountable for that. And then you
0: say that, or you don't say it, but then you do it for sure. There's a place for that too. I totally agree with you. And I think getting to a place inside of ourselves where we're secure enough to do that, yeah. to like let ourselves be destabilized a little bit by the other person that we're interacting with is like a great place of deep work. And I'm also sure that we could keep on talking about this question for yeah. another 45 minutes, but I, but I want to move us along a little bit yeah, here. So yeah, that's good. Great, great question. Third question, having grown up in an unsafe household, I've realized that much of my anxiety is rooted in a fear of punishment. Getting something wrong at work, saying the wrong thing to my partner, not following the rules in life generally, and so on, fills me with intense anxiety. How do we approach dealing with this fear, that if we make a mistake or do something wrong, we'll be heavily punished for it?
1: Well, first off, as I am doing, I'm, I'm sure you are too for us, is just to feel the poignance of it, mm-hmm. ah, you know? And... The rootedness of that fear in a very painful history going back into childhood. There's already a lot of mindfulness here, a lot of self-awareness. I'm not saying it's absent, but I haven't yet heard it in the you know brief written account. Uh, self-compassion, like if you just think about it, okay, there I am. I'll I'll put myself in the shoes of this other person. Yeah. You know, with a lot of respect and diffidence for what I don't know. Okay, fine. So here I am and I'm in a situation and suddenly this fear is there related to making a mistake, anticipation of the dreaded experience of being punished. Yeah. Okay, it's there. A form
0: of performance anxiety almost, where like yeah. there's that that fear that if we don't perform at a certain level, the shoe's gonna drop on us, yeah. Okay,
1: great. So there's anxiety, there's tension. So there, there are all these experiences that I'm now having, right? Tensions, pressure, stress, and fear, and so forth. Can I bring compassion to myself in a very raw way that's directly applied to what I'm experiencing at the time? And is not getting... Spun out into the complication of the story and my understanding of myself and what my therapist told me, but actually intimately and bringing compassion into contact with the raw pain, the anxiety, the stress, the pressure, and the tension inside. Right. Another thing, I'm going to use a loaded term just to kind of be motivating. This is kind of a learning disorder. And what I mean by that, provocatively, Is that most people have had hundreds, thousands of counterexamples of when they made a mistake and the napalm did not land. The stick did not fall. They were not hurt. They were not punished. The dreaded thing did not happen again and again. But there's a a failure of learning. And that's the negativity bias also.
0: And the learning that's there is heavily loaded toward childhood when yeah. developmental experiences have a have an oversized weight on our on our tales in life and all of that good stuff. Yeah, totally.
1: Yeah. So there, there are reasons for this, but I'm being deliberately a little provocative and a little over the top to kind of name that okay, the question really is how do we help ourselves learn that we're in a different world now? Presuming we are, presuming that we haven't. Rechosen a a reenactment of our childhood situation with, you know, the boss from hell. Uh,
0: Sure, punishing spouse, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Abusive partner, stuff like that. So let's assume that's not true. Yeah. So how do we learn? And then to me, we're right in the territory classically that you and I wrote about in Resilient around taking in the good, around highlighting experiences that disconfirm old expectations and using linking to connect the current positive experience of making a mistake without the world ending to that old pain and old expectation of major punishment if you, if you make any kind of error ever. And then over time, learning. You work your way out of those old habit patterns and you become freer over time. So I'll, I'll stop there. Then I'll throw in one last boom after you have a comment.
0: I think everything you're saying is great. I totally agree with it. It's so funny to me reading this question back that my brain didn't go there when I was thinking about it, because I think you're totally right on that a lot of this is about, well, what about all those times when it didn't happen? And how do we take in those experiences and learn from them in useful ways? For me, where I went to with this was just kind of almost more of a general observation that in order to have a... I want to be careful with like the terminology that I use here, but what's coming into my mind right now is like a high-value relationship with another person, like a relationship mm. where you're really getting what you want, they're really getting what they want, it's healthy, it's functional, it's fulfilling. It is inherently based on a certain comfort with risk. Mm. Because in order to get what we want, we need to be able to express it. We need to be able to communicate it when we don't like what somebody else is doing. We need to be able to mess up ourselves Receive correction from somebody else and go through a healthy repair process around it, right? All of these are moments that could theoretically permanently destabilize a relationship. They are high risk, you know, if like we don't rise to the occasion or if we aren't able to rise to the occasion inside of that relationship for whatever reason. And we can't do any of those things if dread gets in the way of us doing them. If our fear of what could possibly happen impedes us from doing them. And then we can, we can have a lot of great conversation about like how to work with that fear and how to deal with the anxiety and all of that. But that macro point is actually kind of helpful for me personally, mm-hmm. because it frames it as almost inescapable. Like we have to climb the hill. There is like very few ways to have a really fulfilling relationship or a really fulfilling life without facing the dread at some point yeah cuz you just make yourself small you resize yourself to fit the container that's available to you and that's like that's not what I want for my life and it's not what I want for the lives of the people who are listening to this and so we have to face it eventually and and setting it up as this like inevitable checkpoint there's something about that that makes it like more deal withable for me cuz like we're going to have to learn how to do this it, it raises the priority of it does that
1: make any sense oh completely that's great i was to finish here, just kind of reflecting on a, almost like the close to the ultimate circuit breaker here on all this. In other words, to be in touch with a truth, and it's like a level in your own psyche and kind of a level in reality in which it really doesn't matter what other people say or if you make mistakes. You're just in, and I don't mean this about being cavalier you know, or know. Being negligent in any way about anything, but rather deep down underneath it all, you're a beautiful being, no matter what they say. Underneath it all, there's just an ongoingness of beingness that's a very deep level that is like a deep refuge for us. There's just an ongoingness in the unfolding of reality. And a lot, a lot of stuff that we get upset about or care about, it's just like froth on the surface of the ocean. 20 feet down, it's quiet, it's calm, it's Mm. stable. And this all may sound really cosmic, but it's really true. It's just to get in touch that deep down to the person, I would say this to the person who's asking this question, can you be aware of a level, a core, a place in your own innermost being that's always already okay? No matter what they say, no matter what goes on, it's a deep ongoingness of all rightness that often is connected with an on fundamental sense of your own innate goodness, your own innate leaning toward the good, your own good intentions, your own good heart. And can you be in touch with that? Can you come home to that? Whatever the feedback of the world may be. And it's been important for me because I've made heroic efforts to avoid disapproval and Heroic efforts to chase approval, much of my life, and increasingly, it's been a really important refuge for me to to have access to this refuge, and which which helps us increasingly get off the hamster wheel, you know, of avoiding critiques and and chasing praise.
0: I think that's a that's a great point, to have, great observation, and a good place to leave this question for the moment. I think we'll be right back to the show in just a minute, but first, a word from this week's sponsors. Terms like the microbiome have gone mainstream, and it's great that there's more awareness about the importance of gut health, and how we can support it by taking a good probiotic. Not all probiotics are created equal, and that's why I'm happy to be partnering with Seed. Seed is proud to be backed by science. Lots of science. They collaborated with leading scientists to create their DS01 daily symbiotic. It's a broad-spectrum, two-in-one, probiotic and prebiotic that includes a proprietary formula of 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains. I take DS01 daily in the morning, and as a guy who has taken a lot of probiotics in his life, one of the things I really appreciated about it is it doesn't have that weird probiotic taste. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com beingwell, And use code 25BEINGWELL to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash BEINGWELL code 25BEINGWELL. Work often means hours a day sitting in a chair, and research has suggested that prolonged sitting poses all kinds of health risks. One of the best purchases I've made over the last few years is getting a standing desk. It's absolutely transformed my workday. I totally love it. And I got mine from Uplift Desk. So when Uplift reached out recently to sponsor the podcast, I was totally thrilled. If you'd like to try one out, visit UpliftDesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. It's really a great product. I use the V2 two-leg configuration for my desk. That's where I work every day and record the podcast from, but they have so many different options for people. Over a million customers have chosen Uplift Desk for their innovative product designs, free 30-day returns, which includes free return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Their pricing is also really competitive, and if you're trying to save some money, you can just buy the legs alone. Go to UpliftDesk.com slash beingwell for 5% off your order. That's up liftdesk.com deskcom slash well. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. I'm always looking for ways to get more protein, and particularly more healthy protein, into my diet, and IQ Bar has been a really good fit for me. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. And today, our listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text being well to sixty-four thousand. One of the reasons that the bars have been so great for me is because they're entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, and artificial sweeteners. And you can refuel smarter with IQ Bars Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ bars, four IQ mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get twenty percent off all IQ Bar products. Plus, you can get free shipping as well. To get your 20% off, just text being well to 64,000. Get your discount. Text being well to 64,000. That's B E I N G W E L L to 64,000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash well today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash beingwell. On to the next one, which... I'm very curious what your take on this one is. I have a 15-year-old boy who we have just discovered is curious about drugs, and particularly what's possible in the mind. He has begun experimenting with pot and is curious about mushrooms. I understand what he's going through, but I'm not sure how to guide him to both respect that curiosity while making sure he doesn't find himself on the slippery slope of addiction. What are your thoughts on helping teens? Whose brains aren't fully developed, lack impulse control, want to belong, and are struggling with peer pressure navigate these substances. What do you think, Dad? Huge. Okay. I mean, this is this is a huge. This is like books have been written on this. Yeah, I don't know how much we could do in ten minutes here, but we'll do our best.
1: Your mom and I were fortunate in that neither you nor your sister were particularly drawn toward alcohol, and I (laughs) see. I'll just quote two stories you told me, you know, one story was that because you didn't particularly care to drink, but you'd be in parties in high school where you would needed to be cool. And one way to prevent people <laughs> from just shoving stuff at you was to walk around uh-huh. with like a can of beer in your Holding hand. Holding a cup, so, absolutely. So you learn how yeah. to do that. And then there was this other story you told me where people were trying to, you know, like offering you a joint and stuff like that and and kind of pushing it on you. And they're, they'd look at you like, why not, man? And at one point you'd Quoted yourself to me as saying, "Well, because I'm Buddhist," and they would go like, "Whoa, that's really cool!" <laughs> and at the time of the walk record, away. that
0: is the loosest possible. I was the loosest possible interpretation of Buddhism. I was just using it for cover. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. both both true stories. <laughs> that made
1: me laugh too. Also, yeah, I have yeah. a very different
0: version of myself for the record, but still now, very <laughs> totally true stories. Yeah, 100%. yeah, okay, cool.
1: So anyway, hey, just funny. So much about it. So I speak as someone who definitely has done a lot of drugs, different times, different places, and, and so forth. And so I'm not, um, I don't know, puritanical about it on the one hand. So I've established those credentials. Man, 15 is just really young to be screwing around with drugs. And there's a growing body of evidence that you know regular use, whether it's alcohol or, or marijuana in a developing brain, is just not a good idea. And then if you throw in any kind of personal vulnerability, like someone who's had, you know, like a manic episode or a psychotic break, I I would just pragmatically as a parent, I would just say, you know, you just shouldn't do that stuff now. And there's also a world of difference between a one-off event and regular use. And then there's also a world of difference between someone who is a high-functioning adolescent in our culture, which a lot has to do with things like You know, honoring the educational process, you know, becoming a good citizen for the future, staying out of trouble with the law, taking care of your health and not doing crazy stuff at home. You know, there's a world of difference and and also someone who's really pursuing things they care about. The unfortunate truth as a result of our society is my ballpark estimate is that four out of five teenagers really don't have something that they really care about and are developing. And developing mastery for from the inside out that they care
0: about. And they're forced to care about all of these things that they really don't care about.
1: Yeah, about. Yeah. yeah. And it could yeah. be skateboarding, it could be manga, it could be, you know, all kinds of stuff that they care about. It could be acquiring greater social skills, you know, and emotional intelligence and, you know, with their with their peers. Okay. There's a world of difference between an adolescent who's really thriving and flourishing, you know, who gets high on Friday night and Okay, that's just really different from someone who's not really functioning in a good way and who's very involved with drugs, including alcohol. Sure. So yeah, they're all said. So it's important to identify what your aim is. And for me, my view of parenting is that you have to take into account the culture and the power you actually have, which is very limited for most parents in Western countries these days.
0: So can, can I just jump in here yeah, about something yeah, that you just said a good. second ago, Dad? Which which was you know, pragmatically, I would just say, just don't do it. And, you know, we've had a long adventure with just say no in the culture yeah. that has been wildly unsuccessful. Yep. And so the, the the crux of this is how do you have a just yep. don't do it conversation slash culture in the household in a way that a 15-year-old is going to receive who is dealing with all of these things that were outlined so well in the question. And I think that that is where the money is like how you go about doing that practically with that kid. I think that's true and it's
1: really helpful to clarify what your aim is and then it also to yeah. clarify kind of an underlying frame around parental power, you know, what's the ethical use and skillful use of parental power and you know, my own bias around this is that parents calibrate this for different ways in terms of their values, but the sweet spot, on average, the best odd strategy for parenting in terms of three dimensions of love, aspiration, and authority is high love, high aspiration, moderate authority, kind of as needed. You know, and and my metaphor is the authority dimension is kind of like a big pasture with real fences. So you have to decide, you know, what is for you as a parent the line that you're prepared to you know, reduce their autonomy out of concern for their safety. So these are really important considerations. And sometimes, and the question of tactics at the local level, like, okay, now that I know what I'm doing, how do I actually implement it? Those tactical considerations are really aided by reflecting in the larger frames, you know, that I just ran through there. So then obviously you want to get the buy-in of the kid and fundamentally preserve your intimacy. And then sometimes you make fateful choices. Like sometimes you say, I've got a kid who's just bound and determined to get high routinely. And I could go to war with them about that, ship them off to Utah or something to some locked ward boarding school. But then I would lose my relationship with them for the lifetime. And so I'm prepared to make, you know, I'm kind of hold my breath, hold my nose, but I'm going to maintain my intimacy. My communication, the lines of communication with the kid, and so you're making these are tough choices. Sometimes I speak from experience; I've been down this road. with A lot of people.
0: That's probably why I'm talking so rapidly because I have a lot to say in a short <laughs> amount of time. Can I jump in here, real yeah, quick, Dad? Please. No, I, I think it's great. I think that everything you're saying is totally well taken and comes from a lot of experience working from people in family therapy. Yeah. and I am sure that these issues emerged. And a couple of things I want to flag here. Mushrooms and marijuana are different substances from cigarettes and alcohol, but it's not like this is our first social go around with addictive chemicals being appealing to teenagers. Then from there, I think the question is, how do you involve the kid in this conversation? Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: that to me is what I would really highlight in what you said, Dad. How do you involve the kid in this conversation? Because I think a lot of the time we treat uh, mid-teenagers like they are eight-year-olds. And they're just not. like They're aware. They know what's going on. They're probably smarter than we think that they are. They're more capable than we think that they are. Involve them in the conversation. Be real with them about your concerns, about the risks, all of that. Not from a framework of trying to prohibit them, but just coming to it from a stance of like, this is the conversation that I would have with a peer of mine who are asking me about the usage of these substances. Like, Take them seriously. And I think that that is a great place to start from. One of the reasons that I wasn't so interested in using a lot of alcohol or cigarettes or marijuana or whatever when I was a teenager was because you guys took me seriously. You didn't come to it from this stance of like, these are these dark substances that you are prohibited from using. It was the stance of like, hey, you know, these substances are restricted for reasons. There are good reasons for their restriction, and you should be really thoughtful about them. And then I was, and I landed on it where I landed. Does that check out for you, Dad? Oh, it's fantastic you're saying it.
1: The, I guess the last thing I would add, including in conversation with a kid, which is what are these substances crowding out? Mm. And what are they getting in the way of developing? So crowding out being other interests, other, uh, and also other ways of learning how to manage stress or manage feeling sad or as social lubricants if you need to have 3 beers before you can get over your social anxiety to talk to other people at a party okay but then how do you ever develop the kind of skills and the kind of you know self-regulation and so forth that can help you manage your social anxiety when you're not buzzed maybe the last thing i would just say i've seen people err on the side parents I've seen parents err on the side of getting extremely dogmatic and dictatorial, and they lose the kid. Because as I was saying earlier, we don't have the traction with our kids today in most of our communities that parents had two, three, four, five generations ago. So getting dogmatic and dictatorial, that's a non-starter on the one hand. On the other hand, I've seen parents who maybe out of shame of their own personal drug history. Or maybe out of a kind of, uh, I guess, hopeful naivete, uh, just sat in a very permissive place and just kind of went along.
0: Or a fear of just regulating their kid at all. Totally.
1: Yeah. I remember a client of mine at one point talking about herself as a 16 year old, and we were just kind of uh, chatting a little bit about her childhood. And she said, and then my dad and I started doing cocaine together. I pulled out my yellow pad at that point. She said, Oh, yeah, I know it's serious, Rick. When you pull out the yellow pad <laughs> to take a note, I'm going to that one. Yeah, like, wow. So don't err on that side either. Regular drug use in the teens is a big deal.
0: Yeah. Ev- everybody that I know personally who struggles with addiction developed that addiction in their teenage years. Every yeah, single person. That's what the research and binging, early binging. Yeah. And also don't underestimate
1: the quantity mm-hmm. that people are using. People I know in the drug and alcohol area, they just say whatever they're telling you they're doing, like triple it or something. That's probably what's really happening.
0: And, you know, if you have a relationship with your kid where you're really confident that they're telling you the truth and all of that, that's great. Yeah, you that's know great. your relationship with them. But I think that as a general statement, what you're saying is probably true there. So again, another, another question that we could do. Yeah, I'm so glad we got on this
1: and, It's such a big one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, totally. And as a caveat to it, I, of course, am absolutely not an expert on this. And Rick has done a lot of counseling of other people around it. But, you know, we don't have specific expertise around these topics or around addiction specifically. And if you think that there is an issue inside of the family or an issue with your kid that is really wandering into serious addiction, thankfully, there are a lot of great resources for get it. And would really, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Mention, get get the help that you need if you can. So, okay, we have a lot of questions to choose from here. And I think that we got time for maybe one more. All right, so Rick has thrown me for a curveball here. And he has recommended that we do a lightning round with the last uh, four-ish questions that I had on my shoot for this episode, because we have been addressing the uh, questions with a lot of depth so far, but we would like to get to more of them. So I'm going to ask these questions, maybe even a slightly simplified version of them, And then Rick is going to do, in classic Rick fashion, probably a one-to-two-point little list of things that a person could do or key things for them to think about. And we're just going to see how many of these we could get through in the next, uh, let's say, 10 to 15 minutes. How does that sound, Dad? Great. All right. Let's give it a shot. So first one in our lightning round. I've been having some trouble sleeping recently when some intrusive thoughts will enter my mind just as I've settled into bed. These thoughts make me very anxious, even though they have no real relevance to the present day. I meditate regularly, I put some effort into my mental health, but still these thoughts keep on coming up, and I was wondering if there was anything that I could do to interact with them more, dive deeper into it, and if you have any idea why they might appear.
1: First context, why is this happening now? And that's always a good question to ask clinically. Like, when did your problems begin or what was happening? So this is someone who's a meditator. There's a lot of self-awareness. Is there anything happening globally, including physiologically? Sometimes it's because our body is disturbed that different imagery and thoughts and so forth start appearing in our consciousness. But really the issue is the fact that, you know, you've got bad digestion currently. So why generally? Second, the thoughts themselves Classic is to just really open into them and try to get to the bottom and to get at what is the dreaded experience that's implicit in these thoughts and then see if you can open to it. I had a background briefly in rock climbing when I first started, and very quickly here, I would start having intrusive thoughts of falling to my death. Um, Hmm. And I would then pull out of them. And after multiple cycles of that, I just surrendered. I said, okay, I'm going to fall to my death. Let's see what happens. I suddenly realized, oh, I'd been pushing down the fear all day long as a young rock climber who didn't know better, and it was resurfacing, and I needed to find a way to be more moderate with my fear over the day. But what enabled me to realize that was an openness to just, okay, let them carry you. Where are they going to take you? And then to resource yourself, as this person sounds like they have good resources already to that real place. And then the gestalt
0: can occur, the completion can occur, and then you're, boof, free. Great. All right. Second lightning round question. I grew up in a dysfunctional family with issues including alcoholism, drug addiction, emotional neglect, and parentification. Over the years, I've become a functional adult in large part because I've been able to create healthy boundaries with my parents. My brother, however, has struggled to do this. What advice would you have for a person like my brother who needs to cultivate the basic sense that boundaries are okay and normal and that it's good to set and maintain them?
1: Several things about that. So first off, there's a classic book. I think it's called Boundaries: What They Are and How to Get Them. That's good. Recently, Nedra Tawab, Tawab Lover, yes, mm-hmm. yeah, has written a beautiful book about boundaries and the importance of them. So I think getting a book like that is really, really helpful. The deep question is around including your your brother uh, lacking the sense that they're entitled to have healthy boundaries. And part of the work there is conceptual, it's cognitive. It's to kind of help yourself believe in the importance of boundaries. And one way into that is to observe other people that you like or admire, or both, who routinely set boundaries and have perfectly good relationships. They're not jerks about it. They're they're good models for you. And you know, help yourself believe that boundaries are okay. Then it's nice to do imagery. I've done things where I imagine that there's like a wall of glass between me and another person or that I'm doing shields up, Scotty, uh, surrounding myself with a sphere of energy and light that bullets bounce off of. Imagery is really great. And then the last thing is to adopt certain kinds of phrases in your mind that you say to yourself and maybe write them out in advance. Maybe, you know, your, your sibling here can be helpful to you about that, but little things like not my problem. I would joke mm. with some of my clients that they needed to tattoo the letters NMP on the inside of their eyelids, not <laughs> my problem, you know? Or I'm not implicated in your mind stream or my boundaries are supporting this relationship. Me setting a boundary is good for you, things like that. And anyway, uh, and then enjoy the fact that you can set boundaries and still have good relationships. And then over time you'll realize, okay, it's more and more okay to, as the proverb puts it, establish the fences that make for good neighbors.
0: To add one thing onto what you've said in this lightning round, in order for us to have healthy boundaries, we need to cultivate a basic sense of self-worth. Because for my needs to matter, I need to matter. And a lot of the time, boundaries issues arise for people when there's a long history, often developmentally, of their needs not mattering of the parental needs being what we're entirely focused on, and you talked about parentification in the question. So that's the thing that I go to really here. Like, How can we build up a basic sense of self-worth overall, particularly self-worth inside of that relationship with the parental figure? And of course, the journey to doing that is long, but that's the target that I would be aiming for. That's great. Right on. Great. So I'm going to really simplify the next question. It's a very dense question, It's quite complicated. It raises a lot of stuff, but I'm going to do my best to simplify it. Okay. I have a partner who thinks they have ADHD, and he has some tendencies in his relationship that are similar to ADHD that are causing problems for us. It's been very difficult to tackle these issues because he seems to put the responsibility onto other people. He has no intention to regulate his tendencies and has even said that he kind of likes them. I don't want to sound like a jerk and I'm willing to make a lot of compromises here and be very understanding, but I feel like I'm doing all the work and it feels like he's using the label of ADHD as an excuse to not grow or change at all. I don't know how to communicate with him to encourage the behavioral changes that I need to make this relationship work without making him feel like I don't recognize the struggle that he's going through. It's a really tough one. I
1: find some ways into this that have better odds than many other approaches, right? Um, One is to step back and to ask yourself, what do you really care about? What really impacts you in material, consequential ways that are for you really important? And you're prepared to create some risks in the relationship to do something about. And it may be sometimes that there actually isn't that much that's really, really important to you. And the rest of it, maybe you can find a way to just kind of accept it or find little ways to sort of disengage from your partner so it doesn't affect you so much. But maybe there still are some things that do really, really do remain. That part's really important. And this could be applied to just about any kind of difference between you and your partner. I find sometimes that people get caught up in a conflict that takes on a life of its own. It almost has a kind of gravitational force that becomes Mm -hmm. sort of circular when actually the stake on the table substantively is really not that big a deal. And yet people are suffering a lot around it and are getting close to blowing up their relationship around it on the one hand. Second, if it is a big deal, what happens if you speak from your heart with your partner about that being a big deal and just really talking about its impact on you? Not in the frame of, you know, you, my partner have some kind of medical condition that's wearing hard on me, but more like just these certain things are affecting me and they, they really are affecting me. What can we do about them? What can we do about them um yeah. outside the frame of you know a diagnosis of one kind or another? I think that's helpful, yeah, so what do you think about that so far, Forrest, in this lightning round?
0: This is so complicated because we're dealing if we take it on face value, we're dealing it with an issue of nature, the idea of yeah. like what is changeable and what is not about a person, yeah and To me, there's a functional and practical question here, which is that there are a set of behaviors that exist for whatever reason that they exist. Sometimes behaviors exist because a person is choosing them. Sometimes they exist because that's just the way that they are for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Then we as their partner have a question as to whether or not we want to be in a relationship with somebody who has those behaviors for whatever reason that they have them. And that's a practical question. It's about what shape do you want your life to have? And to me, the real question here that underlies it, because I have a partner that has ADHD, diagnosed full-on ADHD, is what is their relationship to the behaviors that you find problematic, disruptive, irritating, and so on? Yeah, that's a great question. If they are simply unwilling to engage them in any way, and they're just like, well, here it is, you got to take it now. Yeah, Man, that's tough. That is tough. Because that's a kind of personality structure. That's not about their ADHD. That's about their willingness to interact with a certain kind of thing, which is like fundamental change, you know? Mm. Or their willingness to be caring about your thoughts and feelings inside of this process. And my suspicion is that if that's their view about their specific behaviors in this arena, it's also going to be their view about their behavior in a whole bunch of other arenas. And That's problematic long-term for the health of a relationship. So that's what I would really be asking here is like, are they willing to collaborate with you in some kind of a way where you have both full appreciation for the fact that, hey, maybe these things over here aren't going to change, but can we focus on these things over here then where you do have a little bit of space? And just being able to navigate that conversation from the stance of like, we need to both make this work is really important. Beautiful. Terry
1: Reel's book, we've interviewed him as well. Um, Mm, mm -hmm. Is it called We? I forget the title of his book, or Us. Us. Yeah, Us. 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 There we go. That might be a nice frame too.
0: Awesome. Okay, so last one here. My mailbag question has to do with the feeling of loneliness in a world of couples and families. How can I make peace with being on my own? In my mind, I cling to this idea that life would feel more safe if I was in a relationship. Well,
1: Life might actually be more safe if you were in a relationship, and just to face that fact and see it, part one, part two to honor the longing and you know for that and Perhaps you're taking action to try to be in a relationship to the extent you can realistically do that. Perhaps you've decided to just the costs are not worth it. Just let it go and kind of accept that this is sort of how you're going to play out, you know, the remainder of your lifespan, however long that might be. You know, that we 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 feel it. We we have to feel it and so forth. All that said, in the the human capacity to feel happy is really quite extraordinary, even in really tough tough conditions, even without the full package of something you might really like. And that's where I think it's really important to appreciate that we can find meaning and fulfillment and joy in this life, even without X, whatever X might be. And yeah, uh, like, for example, maybe you've lost a loved one. You, every time you think of them, there's there's a pang And still can you have a full and rich life without that being, which could have been a pet, perhaps, in your life, can you still have a rich and full life, nonetheless? Right. So I think that's a lot of the turning. And so loneliness can, even if we're lacking a soulmate and there is a certain kind of connection that is only satisfied in that way, still we can experience feeling much less lonely based on many other deep, rich, meaningful relationships and yeah. turning toward those and finding those can be deeply, deeply healing to the heart.
0: I love that, Dad, and I think that's a great way to approach this uh, this question in kind of a succinct lightning round sort of way. To maybe drop one final thing, and we'll just yeah. leave it there for this episode. Something I've been really exploring a lot in my own life recently is how there are these emotional experiences that are incredibly challenging that are also just very real. And part of life is accepting them in some form or fashion. Grief is a great example of this. The person is not coming back. The beloved pet is not coming back. The situation is not coming back. That time in your life is not coming back. It it is. Uh, Death. We're all going to die. Existential crisis, existential collapse. We will not be here at some point. Regret over the past. Longing for a relationship that might just not appear for you these are these kind of almost more existential considerations around like, what is our relationship with those kinds of thoughts and feelings? And people have different coping strategies around them. One of the coping strategies that people have that's very common is to essentially deny that they exist, including in some pretty ways that can slip into delusions of various kinds. But I think that the the first step to overcoming all of these things is clearly seeing them and yeah. then accepting and feeling fully whatever the sensation is that accompanies them. Uh, for me, I've gotten a lot of mileage recently out of doing some work around kind of existential crisis and existential threat, and really feeling it and being like, "Yeah, this is the way it is." <laughs> like fully having the moment where you go through the emotional process around it. And there's something in this question that just reminded me of that, so I just wanted to to kind of name that and share that in the event that it's it's useful for people hearing this. Today, I had a great time answering questions from our listeners with Rick, and we can only do these episodes because we get fantastic questions. If you have a question that you would like to hear answered on the podcast, you can reach us at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. Also, probably the best way to get a question answered is by following us on Patreon and becoming a supporter over there. You can find us at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, and for just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and receive a bunch of bonuses in return. So today we explored four different questions in a kind of longer format, and then four in a sort of lightning round at the end. And because we were talking about a lot of different topics throughout this episode, I'm going to go through it kind of quickly here and just talk about what I remember from the conversation and what really stuck out to me. The first question focused on how we can be discerning about the feedback of other people while accepting what's valuable and leaving the rest. The second focused on natural changes in family dynamics over time, and particularly how it's normal for families to become a little bit more separate from each other, particularly after the parents pass away. What really stood out to me from this one is how we use this topic as a way in to talking about managing our wants and needs in different kinds of ways. How when we have a need, we kind of have only a couple of options here. We can either express it to other people, deal with it ourselves, or accept that it's just not going to be met. And these are all ways that we can manage that need. Acceptance is a way of managing a need. But there's not really this magical fourth way where the need just manages itself all of a sudden. We have to be agent in the process if we're going to change it in a meaningful way. And releasing our desire for that kind of mysterious fourth one where other people suddenly start to care about the things that we care about was a bit of a running theme throughout the conversation as a whole. The third question got to dealing with an excessive fear of punishment and anxiety related to that fear. And I loved where Rick took this. He talked about how through the course of our lives, we normally have all of these experiences of making a little mistake and surviving it just fine. But we still have so much anxiety related to those experiences, often because we had experiences when we were younger where we were heavily punished for our mistakes. And so the question gets to learning. How capable are we of learning from our good experiences and really learning that today's different than things were when we were 9 or 12 or 15 years old and allowing ourselves to change based on that difference. Fourth, we got a question about addiction broadly, but then also helping teenagers deal with this natural time in their lives where they're asking a lot of questions about different substances. Maybe other people are trying to influence them or pressure them and to use various substances And how to have those conversations in ways that are productive rather than damaging to the relationship. This is a whole complicated topic. Neither Rick nor I is an expert on addiction per se. And if this is a huge issue for somebody or a major issue in your family, we would really advocate for starters that you seek the help of a trained professional, somebody who really knows what they're talking about in this arena. For both Rick and I, I think that our general point was basically that there are two lines here that are important to consider. The first line is, what is your view about these substances in general? And do you think that it is a good thing to be thoughtful about their consumption? And we both landed on, yes, it is a good thing to be very thoughtful and very careful about consumption. But then the second track is, what kind of a relationship do you want to have with your kid? Because we've just gone through a 40-year period or so of just say no, and it has been a catastrophic failure on just about every level inside of the culture. So the question is, how can we involve kids in this process of being discerning about what we do with our behavior and our consumption without just kind of defaulting to, no, don't do it? Because that kind of harsh prohibition has just not worked. And the reality is that parents often need to make choices. They need to make choices about what they want their relationship with their children to look like. What are the hard lines that they're going to draw? And what are the dotted lines that they're going to draw? And how do you individually make a discerning choice about where you want to land in terms of how firmly you're going to prohibit something? We then answered four lightning round questions at the end of the conversation. Those focused on sleep, creating healthy boundaries, Dealing with a situation where one member of a partnership has a condition that comes with characteristics, something like ADHD, and how do you manage those characteristics in healthy ways inside of the relationship? And then finally, a uh, really touching question at the end about dealing with the feeling of loneliness that's associated with moving through the world as an individual as opposed to somebody who's in a partnership. I love these questions. I thought they were all fantastic. We could have done probably several episodes on each one of them. And again, thank you to everybody who took the time to send a question in. That's it for this episode. Until next time, thanks for listening.